Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. We have been in a series entitled, In This Way. Jesus tells us, when you pray, pray in this way. I think probably now, more than at any other point in any of our lifetimes, we know there's this acute understanding and awareness of the need for prayer in our lives. There's also probably more than at any other point in our lives, the, the recognition that some of us really struggle with prayer. And so I want us to go back to the basics, as it were, with this idea of Jesus teaching us how to pray. What a time to learn how to pray afresh. And one of the things that we've already learned is that we are to pray for the glory of God in all things, that that should begin every single prayer, that we should pray, Father, in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. What does it look like to pray in such a way that before you even get into what you need or what your circumstances might be, that you would center your soul on the person that you're praying to, that that would cause a solid foundation for the most powerful kind of prayer. And then last week we talked about what it means to ask Give us this day our daily bread. What does it look like in the middle of a global pandemic, in the middle of all the things that our world has and continues to see in 2020? What does it look like to pray and to actually be able to put that kind of trust in the Lord to provide every need we have? And today, we're going to look at the most critical provision, the one that only God can provide. Jesus said, pray in this way, forgive us our debts. And I want to concentrate more specifically on those two words, forgive us. I would imagine there's a couple of different groups of people that are watching me right now, listening to me in front of me right now, and you're wondering, what should that sound like when we pray? What does that, what does that sound like when I pray? Some of you may have struggled with secret sin your whole life. There's something down deep inside, and you wonder if God's ever going to be able to forgive you for that. And you read those words, forgive us, and you wonder to yourself, can it really be that easy? Maybe there's some others of you who have a really trite, kind of cavalier view of your sin, and your answer to that question might be, well, of course it's easy. Just begin your prayer with, God, whatever I've done, just forgive me of it, and then you can just move right on. But, but whatever this means, whatever Jesus is getting at when he says to you and to me, pray in this way, forgive us, it's an important that we explore and come to a conclusion as to what exactly he means, because sin that which we actually need to be forgiven of is deadly when it comes into our lives and when it remains there. James Garfield, six months after he was inaugurated president of the United States in 1880, was shot in the back by an attempted assassin. They spent the next two months trying to get that bullet out of his back. He finally passed away roughly 60 days after that initial attack, not by, uh, by the way, from the gunshot wound, but from the infection that ensued, both as the result of the bullet, but also as a result of doctors prodding and pulling and doing what they could to try to get that out, to try to extract it without success. Death came to James Garfield because the root issue was not eradicated. Infections took, uh, it set in and it took his life eventually. That's what sin will do. 
That's what sin will do to you and to me spiritually if it's allowed to remain in our lives. And Scripture reminds us from beginning to end in multiple places that the closer you and me walk with God, the more aware we are of our own sins. And therefore, the more likely we are to rid ourselves of that sin through seeking the forgiveness of God. Conversely, the more we take pleasure in sin, the further we are from God. So it's either going to be God or it's going to be sin. But you can't choose both. The results of choosing sin over your creator and mine are devastating, and it affects, among other things, your communication with God. Listen to these words from the 66th Psalm in verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I don't think in the time in which you and I live, there can be scarier words on the planet to hear than that possibility that the Lord would not listen. But the psalmist testifies to the truth of the fact that there are certain circumstances in which willful rebellion against his commands in my life will result in the Lord shutting his ears to whatever I have to say. And the thing about sin, guys, is it doesn't just block our prayers. It blocks our life. It is the thing that keeps us from becoming everything that our Creator intends for us to be. And this is precisely why Jesus, in his introduction to the model prayer, puts asking for forgiveness near the top of the list. And we look at a passage of Scripture today that gives us a great example of what that sounds like, what that looks like, because no one really understands this from experience any more than King David did. We don't really know if David, we don't know who authored the 66th Psalm, but we do know that he authored the 51st, and we also know the background story. David was a man after God's own heart, anointed as king of Israel, the whole nation of Israel, thrives and flourishes under his leadership until one day he's out on his balcony. He looks across the way and he sees a woman bathing. He begins to lust after her, desire her. So he uses his power and authority. He calls for her, brings her into his chamber, sleeps with her, and then sends her back home thinking to himself, probably with the combination of his power and his authority, as well as just the secretive nature of how all of this happened, that no one would ever know. Nobody's ever going to find out until probably, I don't know, maybe six weeks later, eight weeks later, he receives word from his servants through Bathsheba that there's some evidence of this encounter. She's pregnant. And even in a pre-DNA age, he can't cover this up. And the reason he can't is because her husband, Uriah, is a soldier in David's army. He's actually off fighting for king and country. And so David trying to continue to figure out some way to cover this up, to just sort of make the problem go away, decides to call his servant Uriah back from the battlefield. And you can almost imagine him putting his arm around this soldier and, and, and greeting him and congratulating him and thanking him, expressing deep appreciation, while at the same time giving him a wink and a nod and saying, I'd like to reward you for all the work you've done. Why don't you go home and, you know, spend some time with your wife? And this is one of many instances in Scripture where the servant's heart is actually more pure and his character more, full of more integrity than the one he serves. Because Uriah's answer to the king is quite simple. How can I sleep in my wife's bed when the men under my command still sleep on the ground under the threat of the enemy? And so David, in a last-ditch attempt, try to cover this up. 
sends his servant Uriah to the front lines. Now, if you do that in a day of modern warfare in 2020, you put that person's life in extreme danger. But to do that in the ancient world, the way those ancient armies would come running at each other in an open field, it is an almost certain death sentence. That's exactly what David is counting on. And with the death of Uriah, David believes that his problems are over. He sits on his sin silently. The infection grows. But there's a God who loves David too much to let that happen in his life. And there is a prophet named Nathan who is too faithful to God to let the truth not get out. God has revealed somehow this entire story to Nathan. Some of you may be wondering, how in the world could anybody, you ever, you ever had that happen in your life? There's something you thought you were the only person who knew, and there's some kind of circumstance or encounter you have with another, and you walk away like, how did they find out about that? I can imagine this is what's going on in David's life. As Nathan comes into the king's chambers and through a, a, a parable about a stolen sheep, Nathan gets David to incriminate himself, to admit his wrongdoing. And I want you to hear me well, brothers and sisters. This is an act of love. Not everything loving feels good. Many times, the most loving thing you can do is to have an intervention, and this is a three-way intervention. It is the king, it is the prophet, and it is the God who intends to straighten everything out. This is an act of love because it's the only way forgiveness can come. That's the context in which David writes the 51st Psalm, and it gives us a sense of what it looks like to be forgiven. See, what, well, the thing that frees us when we pray to communicate with God fully for our prayers to be effective is a request for forgiveness. But apparently, based on the models we see in Scripture, and particularly what we see here in the life of David, that includes a lot more than just a quick, trite, oh, Lord, whatever I've done, forgive me of my sins. There's not a wife in this room who would accept that from her husband, is there? Anybody on the other side of that camera? When your husband looks at you and goes, baby, whatever I did, I'm sorry, you're going, yeah, that's not an apology. Yeah, well, it don't work with God either. It doesn't. There are specific things to confess. So this is a lot more than just, well, all right, Lord, whatever I've done, forgive me. Just forgive me my sins, the ones I know about, the ones I don't know about. And now let's, now let's move on to the good stuff. You really want forgiveness? You can have it. But it requires four elements that we see unpacked for us here in David's experience. And the first one of those is contrition. You don't get the good feeling before you get the bad feeling. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So the sentence structure here, particularly the parallelism of the poetic words, coupled with this possessive tone, this me and mine and my, David makes it apparent here in these first three verses. He knows both the severity and the depth of what he's done. These sins are not just grievous, they are his. And in a world like you and I inhabit right now that is filled with blame shifting and gaslighting and whataboutism, we hear something from David that we rarely hear today. It is all my fault. I was wrong. I am sorry. And, and here's the thing, get just a little warning, this act by David 
doesn't instantaneously make things better for him. In fact, it gets worse before it gets better. It produces in David a sorrow. I mean, a heart sickening. See, sometimes God wants you and me to feel the effects of our sin without anesthesia. Because it's the only way we're going to come to understand the depths of what we've done. The only way we're actually going to find the kind of healing that he speaks about. And David understands this. This is sorrow, and it is over what he did. This is not sorrow over the consequences of his actions. Oh, man, I got caught. What's going to happen to me now? This isn't sorrow over the interruption of the status quo in David's life. You hear that sometimes today with guys who go, well, when are, the, when are people finally going to let this go? When am I going to get out of the doghouse? When am I going to earn people's trust again? How long do I have to suffer? Ain't none of that contrition. You know how to recognize the real deal? Look at what David says here. My sin is ever before me. Let me tell you something. That is a gift of love from a loving God. It doesn't feel good. But if you have that level of contrition and it hurts Thank God for that. Because God is leading you in that moment to a place of great freedom like you have never known before. You've got to have your sin ever before you. Now, it's August here in the tri-state area. It's been really sticky. It's been really hot, hasn't it? And so many of you have probably had the experience that I've had of driving at night the days are long still, so it's, you know, maybe 9, sometimes 9.30 before the sun finally completely disappears and the sky is, is black. And so you got probably about an hour of dusk where you're not even really sure. Should I turn my headlights on or should I not? And if your headlights have been off, you don't know what's going on while you drive down the road. But then when you pull off to the side of the road or you get home and you, you go around to the front, you recognize there's been about 10 million kamikaze bugs that just cover the front of your vehicle. You didn't see them because you have your headlights on. But occasionally, I don't know if you've had this experience or not, one of them will miss your headlights, miss your grill, and just poof, like right there on the windshield, right in your line of sight. And that's when you just sort of reflexively activate your wipers. And at the same time that you hit the button, you realize, I'm out of wiper fluid. And what remains of that bug just gets smeared. You hungry yet? Lunchtime's coming next, right? Just gets smeared all over the windshield. And, and now you got places to go. You got things to do. You can't look away from Gosh, you want to look away. That's the nastiest thing you've seen all night. But you can't look away. You have to keep your eyes on the road. But here's the catch-22. When you keep your eyes on the road, you see the road. You see what you need to see. It's not completely uh, prohibiting you from, from continuing to get from A to B. But what it is doing is grossing you out because all you see is bug guts. There's only one way to deal with that, isn't there? You're going to have to decide, I'm pulling over to the side of the road. I'm going to put the car in park. I'm going to do what i got to do to get this cleaned off. And by the way, let me throw this in for free. Learn this from my, my father-in-law, actually. Uh, if you will, find a service station, find a convenience store, buy a can. Don't buy it in the bottle. Buy a can of Coke. Can't be Pepsi. Can't be Mountain Dew. Got to be Coke. Can't be Diet Coke. That's not real Coke. I'm sorry. It's just not. And it also won't do what I'm about to tell you. This will do for you. Get you a regular old can of classic Coca-Cola, Crack it open, pour it from the top, let it come down over that windshield. It'll clean those bug guts off for you. 
you're welcome. You didn't know you were going to hear that at church today, did you? But it will. It'll get rid of it. It'll absolutely get rid of it. But here's the thing. Until you've done that, this is, what is it? It's ever before you. That's what contrition is. It keeps our sin in front of us until we go, okay, I can't ignore this anymore. I got to pull over. I got to stop. I got to put the car of my life in park. I got to deal with what is wrong. And here's the other thing it also, contrition, motivates us to take responsibility for fixing the problem. We're not just trying to, let's just get, what do I got to do to get rid of this? Okay? Some of the most awful paths to non forgiveness I've heard from people who've done horrible, sinful things, and their immediate reaction is, all right, what do I got to do for everything to get back to normal? When is it going to get back to normal? Well, that's the wrong question, big boy. That's the wrong question. And it's the wrong attitude. And it will accomplish absolutely nothing. Because it's obvious when those are the questions that come about, you don't have contrition. You're like the guy who felt guilty because he cheated on his taxes for like a decade, like 10 years straight. Finally, he got to the point where he couldn't sleep at night, so he thought he'd try something. He wrote a check for $150 to the Internal Revenue Service and mailed it in along with a little post-it note that said the following, if I still can't sleep tonight, I'll send you the rest of it. That's where a lot of people are. That's the attitude. What's the least I can do? How can I get to sleep at night? How can I get these people off my back? How do I get rid of this guilty feeling? We're up. Culture awash in emotions. Let me tell you something about God. He don't care about your feelings. He wants to deal with the actual guilt because he loves you. He loves you. And so when you get to a point where you can't get rid of it, thank God for that. Thank God that he loves you enough not to leave you alone, to keep pursuing you for not leaving you alone, for sending this quite painful gift in your life called the gift of contrition that brings you to sorrow over your sin because it's the only path to full and free forgiveness. You won't get there any other way. There must be contrition because that's the only way you truly confess. That's what comes next. Contrition is first. Then confession, look at verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. There's four things David says here in summary. Number one, what I did was, you ready for this? evil. It was wrong. No excuse. Well, you know, Lord, there's a pandemic. He don't care. What I did was evil. Number two, you, God, regardless of the circumstances, are right to judge me for what I have done. Number three, the reason I did this thing is because I was born into sin. So David's admitting to himself here, God, here's the reason I need contrition and I need your full forgiveness because what I, this really, in the end of the day, isn't just about what I've done. This is about who I am. And I need that to change. And then fourthly, and maybe most powerfully, God, I admit this to you because you are a God of truth who desires to hear the truth you already know from my mouth. 
You want to hear me. You already know it, but you want to hear me say it. If I could repurpose, if you will, a, a, a mantra that I've heard a lot on social media recently. God isn't interested in your opinion. God wants to hear his opinion coming out of your mouth. And until he does, you have not confessed. Yeah, Lord, that was wrong. Yeah, that was wrong. You know what it means to confess? The, the etymology of the Greek term for confession that occurs in the New Testament sheds a lot of light on this. Homo logeo. You know what that means? Same speech. What, what does it mean to confess? It means that when there's something going on in my life separating me from God, I say about that thing exactly what God says about it. Same speech. This is what we see David doing. No excuses, no rationalization. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to throw myself at the mercy of God. That's all I've got. I'm absolutely guilty with nothing to say in my defense. God, you desire truth from my inner, innermost being. I will reveal all of it. That's what confession does. Lays everything out. Puts it all on the table. David's experience reflects here the wider teaching of the Bible. That if you try to cover or obfuscate or blame shift or diffuse, God will uncover. Did you know that? There's no way to hide any of this. Eventually, it's going to be discovered. Jesus teaches us this in the New Testament. He says there is nothing, nothing that will not be revealed. Nothing. In Numbers 32, 23, we read, be sure your sin will find you out. Nothing hidden that will be revealed, nothing secret that will not be known. You may think nobody will ever find out, but if you are trying to cover it, God will expose you one day. That day is coming. Here's the corollary truth. If you just go ahead and open up, lay it all out there, and uncover it, you know what God does? He covers it. He forgives it. Whatever temporary consequences you may have to face, you'll be okay with it because you've gotten the most important pardon that you need. It's come directly from the Lord. What does all this mean? It means when I pray, I've got to be honest with the Lord about my sin. Forgiveness is full and free, but there must be contrition that must be followed by confession, and then there must be something that I am incapable of doing for myself. There must be conversion. Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. This is an interesting turn of phrase. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Like, God, you're the one who crippled me here. All right? I kept walking in the wrong direction and you love me enough, you broke my leg so I can't walk that way anymore. And I rejoice over that. You're like, that's crazy talk. Yeah. God, wait a minute, God does that kind of thing? Have you read Genesis 32? Have you seen what he did to Jacob? When God loves you, sometimes he breaks you. And he does it because you're moving in the wrong direction and he is determined by his own holiness and his own passionate love for you not to allow you to keep moving in that direction. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. So there's a shift in focus here. Up to verse 6, everything is about what David has done and what David needs to do. Well, by the time we get to verse 7, David's already done everything that he can do, and everything else, if it's going to happen now, can only be done by the Lord. 
I, I wonder sometimes if that's why we sometimes demonstrate such a lack of faith. Maybe if that's why we're reticent to confess everything to him. It's maybe because we're afraid. Maybe we don't have the faith that he's actually going to cover all of it because we know, hey, once it's out, it's out. There's no getting that toothpaste back into the tube. Is there a way? Can God really clean it up? Even if I believe he can, will he do it? Does he really love me enough? Do you trust him enough to lay it all out there? I think a lot of times the reason we're reticent to do it is because we're, we're reticent to trust. But watch what God does in David's life because he'll do the same thing in yours. It is powerful. He is converting David and making him pure again. We see that in verses 7 and 8. Yeah, there's this, this picture of hyssop. It's a parallelism that essentially is a, a word picture of God giving his children a bath. Now, we got some young families, young, young parents here in the room watching on the other side of that camera, and, and you're having this experience right now with your really little kids. Some of us, thank God, are beyond that age uh, where our children are able to bathe themselves. Amen, parents? And when I say able to bathe themselves, I mean you don't have to send them back upstairs and tell them to try again. They're actually able to do it, right? With boys, it usually happens around the time they start getting interested in girls and simultaneously realize girls don't like body odor. Now, all of a sudden, you're not having to coach them through that anymore, are you? Right? With girls, it tends to happen a little earlier. But all of us remember when our kids were little, if you're a parent, how you would send them in that in-between stage, right? So you've got, here's, here's the thing, like from birth until, you know, they get to a certain age where you're doing everything for them. Then you've got this phase where they've started bathing themselves. You don't even have to tell them to do it anymore. They're just going to do it. There's that in-between phase where you're trying to teach them to take care of their own hygiene. And you know they're not going to do it. You send them into the bathroom, you hear hooping and hollering. I mean, they're having a grand old time in there. And then after about an hour, you go in there to check on them. And if you're in the middle of this right now, hopefully it will be small comfort to you, but at least comfort to know many of us have gone before you. And we feel the pain of you not walking into the bathroom, but wading into the bathroom. Because at this point, there's more water in the floor than there is in the tub. And in spite of all that mess, they still got sticky crap all over their mouth from what they had for supper. They still got dirt behind their ears. They haven't, I mean, they may have spent a lot of time in the water. They ain't clean. So what do you have to do? You got to fill the tub back up. You got to get it done again. If they've managed to get out of the tub, still sticky around the mouth, still dirt behind the ears. And on top of all that, they've got pajamas on that are stuck to their wet body. Because not only do they not know how to clean themselves, they apparently don't know how to dry themselves off either. How many of you are like us and all of your children are through that phase and you just found something to be something else to be thankful about in the middle of a pandemic? Amen. I'm there with you, right? If you're in the middle of that, hang tight. It's, it's coming. It will be over soon. But here's what you need to know. That experience is also true for the children of God. At 48 years old, that is true of me. When it comes to God, having to clean up my mess. Here's the good news from these verses in this 51st Psalm. The soap he uses to get me clean gets me clean because the soap is the atoning work of Jesus. And that atoning work of Jesus is foreshadowed 
in this reference to hyssop. Now, you find that reference in a couple of really prominent places in the Hebrew Scriptures. One is in Numbers 19, in the middle of what's a purification ceremony to remove sin, the slaughter of the red heifer. The other one is in Exodus 12. The Israelites took the hyssop and they used it as their tool to spread blood over the doorposts of their homes so that when death uh, came down into the camp, it would pass them by as God comes down into Egypt to kill every firstborn male in judgment. David is saying this, I'm laying everything out in front of you, God, because I believe that only you can clean this up. Only you can clean this up. Only you can spare me. Only you can forgive me because only you can make me clean. That, that conversion to purity also then uh, results in a conversion to position in verses 9 and 10. We see that. The language there suggests David at one point had a clean heart and a right spirit. The loss of that didn't mean he no longer belonged to God. It did mean that he lost his joy, but God makes him pure. And now there's not just this change internally. There's a positional change. He's not dirty anymore. He's clean. Some of you may be afraid God sees too much of your life. Trust me, he sees it all. He sees all of the dirt, and he can and he will clean that dirt off. And when he does and declares you clean, that's it. You are positionally clean. So I want you to think about this. In verse 8, David's perception of himself has changed. I now have a clean heart. And, and in these verses, verses 9 and 10, now we see it's not just that, that David's perception of himself has changed. God's perception of David has changed. He now stands before the Lord positionally clean. That's what matters. You only get there through open and honest confession and throwing yourself at the mercy of God that he's the only one who can clean you up. There's a fable about uh, Frederick the Great of Prussia visiting one of his prisons in Berlin. And of course, immediately as he comes in, everyone recognizes it's the king. So they start clamoring for release because everybody, as they say in that great movie, The Shawshank Redemption, everybody in here is innocent, right? And so they start saying, look, we, we're all innocent. We need to be let free. We were unjustly tried. We were victims of injustice. We shouldn't be here. All of them except for one prisoner. And that one prisoner, of course, raised the king's curiosity. He goes to the, to the prisoner's cell and he says, why are you here? And the prisoner said, I'm in here for robbery, your majesty. He said, are you innocent as well? No, your majesty. I'm guilty. I'm here because I deserve to be here. And Frederick the Great looked at his guard upon hearing those words, pointed back at that prisoner. He said, I want you to release this man at once. I will not have him kept in this prison where he will corrupt all of the fine, innocent people who occupy it. It's the, it's the thing that's going to set us free. It's the one thing we don't think is going to. It's the one thing that we think we have to re refuse. But... You can't qualify or excuse sin because that's effectively the same thing as telling God it's not my fault. And you can't claim innocence and be set free. You've got to lay it all out, confess it, wait as God changes you. Contrition, you need a bad feeling in order to get to a good feeling. Confession, you need to lay it all out and dig up. Some people say, well, God doesn't dig up old dirt. It depends on whether or not you dealt with what was under the dirt in the right way to begin with. Sometimes he may want you to go back and dig it up because there's some cancer under there. There's something that's going to be detrimental to your soul under there. 
and you have to take personal responsibility by confession, then there is conversion. And when there is all of these things, and you now stand positionally clean, you are now the beneficiary of Jesus' prayer, forgive us. There's one other thing left to do. Proclamation. Look at these last a uh, couple of verses that we're going to look at today, verses 11 to 13. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Here's the result. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So there's a larger purpose in your forgiveness and mine. It's not just about me getting clean, me going to heaven, me getting rid of the guilty feeling. When I'm pardoned, I am the freest I've ever been in my life to proclaim about the one who pardoned me. See, that's the effect of, of being truly forgiven, is that we would say with David, I don't want this to end with me. I want other people to experience this. And by the way, from our series last fall together, who's your one? Who's that one person that we told you to put down on your prayer list, that one child, parent, coworker, relative, friend, someone who does not yet know what it means to be fully and freely forgiven in the person and the work of Jesus, someone who is not a Christian, someone who needs this pardon in their life. How are those conversations going? Because if you've truly experienced what David experienced, you know you know what it was like to be in your trespasses and sins. You know what it's like to be brought to life. And if you're anything at all like David, you're going to want everybody to know what that's like. God, don't let it stop with me. I must be free to proclaim this good news. One of the still rather well-known incidences of drama in college football happened at the 1978 Gator Bowl. Ohio State coach Woody Hayes got himself into some trouble. He let his temper get the best of him, and in a fit of rage, he slapped uh, a member of the opposing team, a Clemson player. He was summarily terminated from his position, lost all respect in college sports. Everybody. First of all, Woody Hayes thought that his career was over and effectively that his life was over. And then the very next season began, and a huge banquet that had been long planned was held, not for the NCAA Division I, but for the National Football League. And people were shocked. Biggest shock of the night was when they looked up and they saw not a disrespected man, but a highly respected one, a coach named Tom Landry, a man who was highly respected then, even to this day, years after his death, is still revered as America's coach. I mean, you know, he's a good, you, you, you know he's a revered figure when even Redskins fans like the coach of the Dallas Cowboys. He walked in. What, what shocked him? What shocked them was right next to him coming in as his personally invited guest to the banquet was Woody Hayes. And that changed everything for Woody Hayes. Some of you may feel like Hayes did that night in Jacksonville, Florida. You're wondering, how in the world could I get forgiveness? How could I come back? Is there any way out? Is there any way back? Let me tell you, Jesus gives you hope in the model prayer. Forgive us our debts. David gives you an example in Psalm 51. I will experience 
contrition. I will feel the effects of my sin with no anesthetic. I will confess all of that which is bringing me pain. I will rely completely in faith on the God of Scripture to atone for my sins and to clean me up, and I will proclaim the greatness of that forgiveness until the day I die. You do those things, you're going to have a Woody Hayes moment. And God himself escorts you into the kingdom. Heavenly Father, I just pray for these people in front of me, those that are watching right now, that they would experience your forgiveness. Lord, for those who belong to you who may be reticent even as your followers sometimes to just lay everything out, I pray that today is the day that they do exactly that and that they find a sense of healing and forgiveness and freedom that they've perhaps never felt. Lord, especially I pray for those who may have played church for a long time, maybe they, they speak about God, they've read their Bibles, they've done a lot of things, but they've never really had the kind of life-transforming experience that David experienced, an understanding of their sin that brings them to lay it all before you, to request your forgiveness, to rely in faith on the death and the resurrection of Christ, to cleanse them from their sin. And Father, they stand right now hopeless under your judgment, but I just get a sense that you love, I know that you, the, your word tells us that you love them. You don't want them to stay there. Lord, I get a sense you're calling them today to come and to find freedom and forgiveness Lord Jesus. Lord, would they find that today? And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.